The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for enduring the cross, for bearing our shame, for providing a sacrifice for sin, and by doing so, by tearing the curtain that separates us from your Father, from our Father, from God Almighty. Would you today draw us into the presence of our Father as our great high priest. And may we rest in the fellowship of your love and rejoice in the hope of our salvation. All for the glory of your name. Amen. Please be seated. So over the last eight weeks, we have been making our way through the first half of the New Testament book of Hebrews. And we've been taking a careful look at who Jesus is, what he has accomplished, and why that matters to us. Well, today, in the last sermon of this series, we are finally going to address a question that I have heard more than once over the last few weeks, which is, what is the deal with Melchizedek? You don't hear this question anywhere except in church. Melchizedek is this strange yet incredibly compelling character who turns up only twice in the Old Testament before playing an unexpectedly important role here in Hebrews. Before we talk about Melchizedek, however, I I want to orient us briefly in Hebrews. So at the end of chapter 2, the author makes a bold assertion, claiming that Jesus is our high priest. He then repeats this and he builds on it in chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6. All along, his Jewish audience, those who first received this letter or book or sermon, this Jewish audience, they were likely growing increasingly agitated. And this is what they were thinking. Where did you get this idea that Jesus is our high priest? According to the law of Moses, he can't even be a priest, much less a high priest, because he's not from the tribe of Levi. Now, we understand that he's our king because he's from the tribe of Judah, and we're really excited that Jesus is our king, but it's not possible for him to be a priest. To call him high priest 
is to disregard the law and to overturn the purposes of God. That's probably what his audience is thinking. And it's not until chapter 7 that the author addresses this simmering question. And he addresses this question by turning to Melchizedek. So what's the deal with Melchizedek? Why does the author of Hebrews use him as an example? And what do we learn about Jesus through him? Well, we first hear about Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Brian read it to us just a moment ago. And the story goes like this. Abraham, the father of God's people, had only recently settled in the promised land when his nephew Lot got caught up in a regional war and was taken captive. Wasting no time, Abraham gathered his men and he sped north where he overtook Lot's captors, defeated them in battle, and then returned home with Lot and everyone and everything else that had been taken. Upon returning home, the kings of the region, they came out to meet him and to celebrate his incredible victory. And chief among them was the king of Salem, Melchizedek. Now, Salem is an ancient name for Jerusalem. In Hebrew, it comes from the word shalom, which means peace. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So, here we have the very first mention of Jerusalem in the Bible, where the king of righteousness rules over the city of peace. Now, those of you who know your scripture, that should get your ears burning. That is quite a combination given where the story takes us. But that's not all. In Genesis 14, we are told that Melchizedek is not only king, he is also priest of God Most High, meaning that he's a priest who serves the one true God whom Abraham also serves. When Melchizedek meets Abraham in the valley, he blesses him, and they share a meal of, get this, bread and wine. Whereupon Abraham pays him a tithe from all the loot that he had won in battle. I just think, think this through. Abraham was God's chosen man. He was the one through whom God had promised to raise up his chosen people to bring blessing to the world. He's a big deal. Maybe the biggest deal in the Old Testament which means that here we have the central figure of the Old Testament openly acknowledging that Melchizedek, the priestly king of Salem, is his superior. Well, then Melchizedek disappears. Poof, he's gone. He drops out of the narrative entirely. In the next chapter, God makes his covenant with Abraham, and the story moves on. We don't hear about Melchizedek again until he makes an equally brief and mysterious appearance in Psalm 110. In this psalm, God promises to raise up a new and triumphant king who will defeat all of his enemies, judge every nation, save his people, and serve them as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the psalm offers no explanation of who Melchizedek was or why his priesthood is different from every other priest. We're simply told that one day the king of righteousness will reign, he will be high priest forever, 
and he will be both savior and judge. So we hear about Melchizedek for the first time right near the beginning of our Bibles. And then he comes up right in the middle of our Bibles for a second time. And then finally for the third time, he comes right near the end of the Bible in the book of Hebrews. But here Melchizedek moves from the fringe of the story right onto center stage. He's first mentioned by name in Hebrews 5 verse 6. And this is where the author drops a bombshell explaining that Jesus is the promised king and priest of Psalm 110. He's the one who serves forever after the order of Melchizedek. But the author doesn't explain what he means by this until chapter 7, and that's where he turns his full attention to this mysterious man. Now, we didn't read the entire chapter this morning because there's just way too much going on in there to cover in a single morning. But we did read the beginning and the end so that you could see what the author is up to. So take a look at verse 1 again. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. He sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't he? Now, this doesn't mean, I I don't think, that he was somehow the pre-incarnate Jesus, nor are we meant to believe that Melchizedek literally had no parents or that he literally never died. This is simply how he's presented to us in Genesis 14, meaning he's introduced to us without a genealogy, without parents, and no further details are given about his life or his death. He's introduced into the narrative in an intentionally murky and awe-inspiring way, unlike the other main characters. Melchizedek is like a shadow. He's like a shadow appearing for a moment. And as readers, we are meant to see him and then wonder and watch for the man yet to come who could cast a shadow like him. So in this sense, Melchizedek is a type. He's a foreshadowing of someone yet to come in the story. His role in the Old Testament is to be a mystery. And in being a mystery, to point to someone even greater than himself. Think about it this way. Have you ever been in the middle of a big city, on your way, walking in a hurry, when you caught the scent of freshly baked bread? So city streets are a chaos of different smells and scents. They smell of exhaust and trash and rain-slicked asphalt, punctuated with doses of perfume and cigarette smoke. But when you catch the scent of freshly baked bread, everything around you stops. And suddenly all you want to do is to find the bakery, buy the bread, smother it with butter, and devour it on the sidewalk. But then the scent's gone. And the bakery's nowhere to be seen. 
And you carry on down the sidewalk with this sense of deep longing and buoyant hope because you know for a fact that there is something warm and beautiful and delicious in this world. Melchizedek is the scent of freshly baked bread on the streets of the Old Testament. He is the promise of something truly satisfying. He's the hope of someone greater. And here in the book of Hebrews, we are invited into the bakery to taste and to see. And this is what we discover. We discover that the bread of life is Jesus Christ our king and high priest who reigns forever at the right hand of God. The reason the author of Hebrews can call Jesus our high priest and our king is because God did this once before in the city of Jerusalem. According to the law of Moses, only Levites can serve as priests and only descendants of Judah can serve as king. But once Long ago, in the days of Abraham, God established another order of priests, and that's the order of Melchizedek. In this order, priest and king come together. So the whole reason for including Melchizedek in the Genesis story, it turns out, is to point to Jesus. So why does this matter to us? Well, first of all, it's an emphatic reminder that the whole Bible is ultimately about Jesus. He's there from the beginning. When Moses was writing Genesis, God had him include the story of Melchizedek because he knew that thousands of years later, he would have the author of the book of Hebrews look back to Melchizedek as a way of explaining the ministry of his son, Jesus. But there's so much more to this comparison with Melchizedek. It has to do with our deepest longings and with our highest hopes. So I want you to notice the last two words of chapter 7. The author has been comparing the priests of the Old Testament with the priestly ministry of Jesus, and here is how he sums up these differences in verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Perfect forever. Those two words joined together here, they're actually repeated independently of one another throughout chapter 7 as the author does his best to describe the indescribable. So the author introduces the idea of perfection and our desire for it in verse 11. He then notes the imperfection of the law in verse 19, and finally asserts the perfection of Jesus and his ministry here in verse 28. That word for perfection, it doesn't just describe something flawless like a diamond. It also refers to completion, to the ultimate fulfilling of a purpose. Jesus isn't merely without flaw. He is the fulfillment of God's purpose in redeeming humanity. For this reason, his ministry, it completely supersedes all other priestly ministries that went before him. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of God's purposes. 
At the same time, his ministry is eternal, perfect forever. The author emphasizes the temporary nature of the law of Moses over against the eternal reality of Jesus' ministry, referring repeatedly to the fact that his ministry is forever. Verse 17, 21, 24, 25, 28. He uses several different terms to make his point, each one pointing to the idea that Jesus' ministry takes place in time as we know it and beyond time in a way that we can barely begin to understand. And he concludes all of this by saying in 8 verse 1, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Rarely is the author of this book so clear. At the end of his multi-chapter discussion of Jesus and Melchizedek, he wants us to know that Jesus, who is perfect forever, is our advocate, our counselor, and our mediator as he sits alongside God the Father, reigning over everything. Unlike every high priest who went before him, whose work was done while standing in the temple, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God because his work of reconciling us to God the Father on the cross is complete. He has risen. He now reigns. He's on our side. And one day he will return to usher us into glory, perfect forever. Have you ever had a moment when you thought you caught a glimpse of perfect forever? When you saw something so stunningly beautiful or you heard a melody so powerfully evocative that it captured your entire being for just a moment and filled you with wonder and awe and longing and the sense that you're just a tiny little living speck in a world so much grander than you can grasp. Or perhaps you've caught the scent of freshly baked bread. And in that moment, you experienced a hunger so deep that it surprised you. And at the same time, confirmed in the depths of your being that there is a feast to be eaten somehow, someday, somewhere that will truly satisfy you. We have these moments we share these longings, we catch these scents, and they testify to something so much greater, something that we can grasp for only a few fleeting seconds now, but will one day call home. There is something better than this life that we now live because there is someone better ruling in the heavens. There is a priest king who sits at the right hand of God, who's sovereign over everything. He's our anchor behind the curtain, who holds us fast and who's drawing us near. By the power of his indestructible life, he's able to absorb absolutely our imperfect mortal lives, joining us to him in perfection forever. 
The point of Hebrews 5 through 8 is that we have such a high priest in Jesus Christ. We have such a high priest. But don't miss this. His is a priesthood that we must receive and accept. He doesn't force himself on us. Perfect forever is not the end of the story for everyone. It is only for those who trust in Jesus to be their Savior, to be the mediator that we need, standing between our sin and God's righteousness as the one who makes us righteous through His redeeming blood. He only becomes our high priest as we entrust ourselves to His care and submit to Him as Lord of our lives. During this Advent season, as we make our way to the manger in Bethlehem, would you consider Jesus? Consider Him afresh as the high priest you worship and let your hope and your confidence abound in Him. Or perhaps consider Him seriously for the first time. Consider that He gave His life for you, that He wants to rescue you from sin, sorrow, and fear. Consider Jesus, the high priest who is perfect forever. The author of Hebrews puts it better than I could ever hope to in chapter 10 of this letter. So we'll end with his invitation and affirmation. This is what he writes, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Amen.